0: Very okay.
1: good. Okay. Breath good morning. Of... We're now going to have Harlan begin his big book study. Thanks. Thank you, Harlan. Thanks, Nance, and thanks to everybody for for being here. Thanks to everybody who makes this possible. It is already. He can't September see you. 4th. This is him. This is 700 pounds. Somebody unmuted. Somebody is unmuted. So if the hosts are somebody could mute, we would we'll move forward. The year is going. I uh, I normally sleep late on Saturday. That's my one day when I don't walk. And normally in Arizona in the summertime, it's light very, very early here, very early here. It is often the sun is coming up 530, quarter to six for sure, you know, 20 to six, that sun is up. And this morning, it wasn't light until about seven. It was just Freaky. It was just freaky. Um, but anyway, that aside, that aside, we are in the chapter Two Employers. And this is a chapter that really gets kind of a bad rap. There's three chapters that get a bad rap in the big book Two Wives, The Family Afterward. <clears throat> and two employers. And the reason that they get a bad rap is a lot of people really look at them as nuisances rather than the wealth of information and the wealth of of knowledge that is there. It's just wonderful. So what we're gonna do today is we're gonna open our minds, we're gonna open our hearts to some new information about the chapter to employers. And just to kind of review, this is the only chapter in the book besides the doctor's opinion that is not primarily penned by Bill Wilson. This chapter was written by Hank Parkhurst. And rather than give you a whole biography on who Hank was, Hank was very instrumental in the big book writing, Hank really spearheaded the entire effort of writing the book with Bill. Bill was the primary author of the book, but Bill wanted to sell the rights of the book to a publisher for $1,500, because $1,500 at that time seemed like an awful lot of money to him. And Hank begged him not to do that, that we need to keep the book in house. And he was very influential in keeping the book as an AA property and Hank's office was in New Jersey and he was on they were on Walnut Street and Hank had a business called Honor Dealers and Jimmy Burwell worked there and Bill Wilson worked there and Hank Parkhurst worked there and what they were trying to do was sell automobile polish to clean your car to polish your automobile which was very popular at that time doing you know you to polish the car. And uh, they were all set to put DuPont out of business. But of course, that never happened. But the one thing that did happen is the big book got written. So with everything I've said in mind, we're in the chapter to employers. And let's see what we can glean from this very, very important chapter. And by the way, I'll give you another uh, interesting uh, side note to the chapter to employers: It is the only chapter of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous that the what that the word God does not appear in. Hank was an atheist; he was not about to put God in here, and he felt like he didn't want to put it in there, so he didn't. And this is the only chapter in the book without the mention of God. So with those things in mind, let's take a look at what we have. We're on page 138, page 138, and we're going to begin in the middle of the page with the paragraph that begins, the only answer, the middle of the page, 138, the only answer I could make was that if the man followed the usual pattern, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. And what we're talking about at the end of last week, just to kind of review, is we are talking about the denial mechanism that bosses, employers, people who are normal often have when it comes to alcoholism or food addiction or any type of addiction that a human being can have. And they've been saying that at our bank, we don't tolerate alcoholism. He's been to treatment, he's been told. So we know that he's not gonna be drinking again. And so he's been told. And you know, there's just a lot of misunderstanding I will never understand what it's like to be a normal eater. I don't get it. I don't really understand it at all. I've told this story and I've redepicted this this picture in my in in this forum here, my our big book study here, many many times. And in my life, I have seen this where a father or a mother that has several children, they will take a candy bar, or they will take a hamburger, or they will take whatever it is, a piece of something, pizza, cake, whatever it is, and they will split a candy bar, a nickel candy bar. See, when I was a kid, a candy bar was a nickel, a Hershey bar was a nickel, you know, whatever, what Milky Way was a nickel. So that's how old I am. I'm 67 years old. Today, those same candy bars, although they are bigger, I don't know how much they cost, but I know that they're... Isn't it nice? I don't know how much they cost, but it's so nice to see that they <laughs> that they are bigger, but it's frightening to see how much I've seen them advertised for. And by the way, just as a side note here, I was very... I get shocked every year. You know, uh, Halloween is... Over a month away. It's uh, Halloween, is probably what seven weeks away. And it, but in the grocery store that I shop in here in Scottsdale. Uh, Halloween is obviously the next big thing because, you know, there's not a lot that they put out for Labor Day. There are some things that they put out for Jewish holidays here. They will put some things out that people use for Jewish holidays, like different candles that we burn or different things that we use, different things like that. But the big thing now, and I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but I must finish my thought here. The big thing now is Halloween. And my God in heaven, thank God they didn't have this when I was eating. They have Reese's peanut butter cups and Nestle's crunch and M&M bags that are a yard long, 36 inches long, 36 inches of candy. My God, I would have been dead. I would have just exploded. Well, you don't have, I'm not using that as a, a ridiculous thing, but in my lifetime, I have seen people, parents split a candy bar, split a hamburger, and give it to different children of theirs, and neither one of them can finish the entire fraction of the candy bar. I don't get that. But let's, let's go back to the book here and finish the thought. So this person is describing to Hank Parkhurst, oh no, we've sent him to treatment. Oh no, we've warned him. He knows the policy of this company. He knows that if he drinks again, he'll be out of a job. So he'll never drink again. I wish that were the case. I went to the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club. I I was still married at this time. I'm gonna go back maybe 15 or 16 years ago. And there are uh, several really large meetings of AA at the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club, and, and some smaller ones. And this was a speaker meeting they have on Saturday night, and I went to it. And there was a guy who had been in the NBA that was there. He was a player in the NBA. He played for Houston, or Dallas. Dallas he played for. And he, he talked about how they put in his contract a $13 million clause in the contract. And they put this clause in there that if he could stay sober for the entire season, plus the playoffs, that he would collect this $13 million. Now, to a normal person, A person who is non-alcoholic, non-compulsive overeater, non-drug addict, whatever that may be, whatever you're addicted to, doesn't matter. It would make perfect sense. Who wouldn't, if they were normal, not want to get $13 million for staying sober? It's a no-brainer, right? It's a no-brainer. I mean, why in the world would you not want to get that 13 million? And he tells the story that the very first time they did his blood and urine, he was obviously, he had been drinking. He had been drinking. He could not resist the urge to drink for even $13 million. So- (laughs) We see the power of addiction and there are people who will call me and, and it says here, if he followed the usual pattern, he'll, he would go on a bigger bus than ever. I get calls from people from time to time to think I'm mad at them they tell me how they're binging and they tell me how they're this and they won't do this. And they won't. I love that. When they tell me what they won't do uh, master Yoda should have been my sponsor. Uh, either there is no try either do or do not master Yoda would have been a amazing, amazing sponsor. So anyway, and they think I'm mad at them because sometimes I get, I get upset. I'm not upset at them. I'm upset because I respect the killing power of this disease. I respect the lethal nature of what this is. And I don't care how wonderful you are. I don't care how beautiful you are. I don't care if you're black or white or green or yellow. I don't care if you're Catholic or Jewish or Christian. I don't care if you're Muslim. I don't care whatever it is you are tall or short or whatever it is you are anorexic or, or obese. The disease has a killing power that is second to none. And there is no power of this universe that I have seen that it is, that is as certain, as absolute and lethal as the killing power of this disease. And that's why sometimes I get upset with people that are describing how horribly they feel how horrible their situation is. And yet they've got a laundry list of what they're not going to do. I'm not going to have a food plan and I'm not going to believe in God and I'm not going to have a sponsor and I'm not going to go to meetings and I'm not going to do this. And oh, my favorite is I'm not going to weigh and measure. Do whatever you want and don't do what you don't want to do but the disease is as lethal for the willing as it is for the unwilling. The disease is as lethal as lethal can be. So when, when the alcoholic, meaning Hank, is hearing the banker say to him, oh no, we've told him, oh no, we've explained this to him, Oh, no, we have shown him. And Hank is thinking, yeah, right. Like that's going to make a difference. But you can't explain that to a normal person. They just don't get it. Let's continue. Page 138, middle of the page. I felt this was inevitable and wondered if the bank was doing the man an injustice. Because the bank is engaging in denial. Why not bring him into contact with some of our alcoholic crowd? He might have a chance. I pointed out that I had had nothing to drink whatever for three years. And this in the face of difficulties that would have made nine out of 10 men drink their heads off, why not at least afford him an opportunity to hear my story? Oh, no, said my friend, the normal person, this chap is either through with liquor or he is minus a job if he has your willpower and guts he will make the grade. Guys, we know one thing if we don't know much else. Willpower and guts have nothing to do with it at all whatsoever. I can't see all your faces. I can see that there's 119 of you. But what I don't have the ability to do, because it looks odd if I'm talking and I'm scrolling through here, so I don't do it. And I'm trying to think of what I'm going to say. I'm trying to think of how I want to comment on what I just read. So I don't have the wherewithal to go scroll through here and look at the ones that are showing their faces. But here is what I would bet my bottom dollar on. I'm gonna bet my bottom dollar that of the 119 of us that are on this line right now, you will not find 119 other people that have as much willpower and character and guts as we have. We have thrown water pistols in the path of tanks. We have thrown water balloons at destroyers. We have done whatever we could do to try to at least slow down the unbelievable onslaught of a disease that we didn't know we had, that we couldn't control, we didn't cause, and we cannot cure. We did everything we could. We cried. We cried out into the night and we begged God to please help us. And when no help came, we turned on God and said, screw you. And then we came into program and hopefully we get a new relationship with our creator that's loving and kind and benevolent. And we see that see God could and would if he were sought. We just didn't know how to seek him before. And the way to seek him is to work the steps. So normal people believe that once we have enough information or we've been scared enough or convinced enough that we will never eat this way again. And what Hank Parkhurst is saying to himself is, this is ridiculous. No amount of that is going to change a thing. What does Dr. Silkworth tell us? Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. What is frothy? Frothy is like the suds on a beer. It lacks substance. I can't bribe you not to eat. I can't scare you into not eating. I can't browbeat you into not eating. It doesn't work. If it did work, none of us would probably be here now because every one of us has been yelled at and screamed at by doctors. Every one of us has been shamed and embarrassed by doctors and the people about us every one of us has cried ourselves to sleep thinking, why can't I be like everyone else? Why can't I look like everyone else? Why can't I, why why don't I, why me, why me? And now we can say if we're in recovery, why not me? I'm not glad for what happened in my life relative to the disease, but if it brought me to today, (sighs) where I can be of maximum service to God and the people about me, then that horrible nightmarish journey of rejection and loneliness and an asexual existence and an existence of being an object of ridicule has a purpose. God in his infinite wisdom has brought purpose and focus to my life from the middle of horrible pain and torture, he has redirected me. And now I can honestly tell you that if this works for me, it's gonna work for you. That the hell and torture of your life will come to fruition when you too can say, hi, I'm Charles, I'm Harlan, I'm Mary. I'm Roz. I'm Cindy. I'm whoever. And I am a compulsive overeater and stand there and give hope to the hopeless. You can do it too. Let's continue. We're at the bottom of 138. I wanted to throw my up my hands in discouragement. I saw that I had failed to help my banker friend understand. He simply could not believe that his brother executive suffered from a serious illness. Then there was nothing to do but wait. We will never make people understand what this is. There's only one person in the whole world that has to understand that I have a disease and that's me. I would say that the number one question that we get in vision is, may I be heard, may I be heard, may I be heard? But right behind that question, and I think if we were a species of people that go to vision, we would be the may I be heard species because the scientists who examined us would say, why do they all say may I be heard, may I be heard, may I be heard. And that would be the name of our species. Oh, there's one doctor, Dr cup. (laughs) There's a may I be heard bird. No, but the number two question at vision, I'm silly today. I don't know why. It's the beginning of college football. That always gets me giddy. I love it so much. But anyway, and the Cubs suck. So I've accepted that, but that's all right. Okay. The number two question in vision is what's the difference between recovered and recovering? And the number three question I would have to say is how do I make someone understand And the number four question is, how do I help my daughter, my son, my cousin, my brother, my whatever, how do I help them? How do you make someone understand this? You don't, you have to understand it. And if you understand that you have a disease, then you don't have to worry about what people are thinking. What other people think is none of my business I don't know and I don't care. I love every one of you, but if you think I can eat cake, you're wrong. If you think I can eat bagels or I can eat uh, whatever, you're wrong. I know that I can't eat them safely, that I'm physically allergic to these foods and that every single time I eat them without exception, I am tempting fate and I am tempting death. All it takes is one mouthful of certain things to set me off and I will be off to the races and he says there is nothing to do but wait. Now let's go to the top of 139 and see where he goes from there, because you see what I'm hoping to point out to you. So let me let me verbalize it in the exact words that are going on in my head right now. What we have is denial. And there's one person that needs to know I am afflicted with an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. I've mentioned it here before. Sometimes I like to be a brat. And when I go to the cardiologist, it says on there, who's your primary care physician? And sometimes just to be a brat, I'll put in William Duncan Silkworth and I'll put in the address of Towns Hospital. But I I tell him later that I'm being a brat. So it's not true. But anyway, Dr. Silkworth tells me I have an allergy of the body and a twist of the mind. He says this at this, any description of this without this physical factor is incomplete. And that means that when cake goes in my mouth, doesn't matter why it goes in my mouth, doesn't matter my, my sister-in-law's brother's next door neighbor said something horrible to me, or uh, I won the lottery that it doesn't matter why. Once that cake is in my mouth, it is going to set me up with an actual physical craving for more of the same. And this reaction is called the allergy of the body. The phenomenon of craving, Dr. Silkworth calls it. Why does he call it a phenomenon? He calls it a phenomenon because he himself didn't really understand it, but he knew that it was there. He knew it was there through observation. Once Bill Wilson took one drink, he was off to the races. What does he say? He, was, he went into the, a cafe to make a telephone call. In no time, I was beating on the bar, wondering how did this happen again? But I might as well get good and drunk this time, and I did. That's that's in Bill's story, right? And Bill has this allergy of the body, and Bill has this twist of the mind. Does he not? He does. Top of one thirty nine. Presently, the man did slip and was fired. Wow! What do you think of that? So, after all the warnings and all the treatment centers, he was never introduced to anybody else that had this illness. Didn't go to meetings. Didn't work the steps, and he slipped and he was fired. Following his discharge, we contacted him. Without much ado, he accepted the principles and procedure that had helped us. What are the principles? The principles are the steps. It's just another word for the steps. The principles and procedure, what is the procedure? The working of those steps. So it's the working of the steps that helped this guy. That had helped us. He is undoubtedly on the road to recovery, undoubtedly on the road to recovery. Rarely have we seen the person fail, who has thoroughly followed our path. And they're illustrating this yet again in this chapter. To me, this incident illustrates lack of understanding as to what really ails the alcoholic and lack of knowledge as to what part employers might profitably take in salvaging their sick employees. In business, in life, we take risks. We take risk. You know, I took a risk and I took a, a risk and I bought this house. And it's not the fanciest house. It's not the house of my dreams. I would like a house, uh, you know, uh, on the water overlooking the ocean or Lake Michigan or something. Or I'd like a house up in Camelback Mountain. This is not the house of my dreams. It's a very modest home, very modest, it's called a patio home. I can afford it. The mortgage on this home is not so much that it it taxes me in any way. I pay the mortgage, no problem. Actually, I don't pay the mortgage. They take it out of my bank account, but that's neither here nor there. And I'm okay with it. And one day I will pay off the house and I won't be paying rent, and I won't be paying a mortgage, and that'll make my life quite a bit easier. The reason that I'm talking about this is we all take risks every day. What if the house burns down? That's why I have insurance. What if property values in Scottsdale somehow plummet unlikely, but it could happen. I took a risk. One thing I'm not willing to risk is my life because I have the knowledge and the experience and the belief that risking my life with food is stupid. I can't get away with things like some other people can. I have friends of mine and we're getting older now. We're in our 60s. And some of my friends are noticing for the first time in their life, their belt is all the way at the, at the last hole there. And their shirts are just not fitting the way they used to because their lives are much more sedentary than they used to be. And we're getting older and their metabolisms are slowing down. And so they go on a diet or they don't, but I'm not willing to risk it it says here on 139, if you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, a a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things, which so far as as the alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone whenever you want to. You control your drinking of an evening. You can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head and go to business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anybody else, save the spineless and the stupid. I do not understand from firsthand experience what it's like to be an alcoholic. Never in my entire life, not one time, not for a minute, not for a second, has it ever crossed my mind, oh, man, I want to drink liquor today, or I want to drink beer, or I want to drink whatever. I've never done that. I've never understood from firsthand experience that I wanna take drugs or smoke crack. I have a friend of mine that lives in New York City and he is a compulsive overeater and he, he smoked a lot of crack in his time and done a lot of drugs and he's done a lot of those things. So he has more of an understanding of crack smoking or drugs than I ever will. But he and I are both compulsive overeaters but do I understand that once he would smoke crack in any measure, he's gonna gonna be smoking crack until he, he doesn't know what year it is. He's gonna be smoking crack until he doesn't know what day it is because that's that allergy. That's that allergy. But when normal people look at us, they just don't understand it. And the secret is they don't have to, that's okay. That's okay. My friend in New York would rather eat food than smoke crack. I've asked him and he was in Los Angeles one time and I said to him, if I turned you loose, would you go back to drugs or back to food? And he looked at me and he says, you know the answer to that one. I would go back to the food in a heartbeat. But he smoked, he took drugs. He did a lot of those things and then ended up on his ass from those things and ended up completely shipwrecked because of the food. He ended up completely shipwrecked. I understand the fact that he's an addict. I don't, I don't necessarily understand from firsthand, but I get it. I totally get it. But we can't wait for others to get it. Let's go to 139. When dealing with an alcoholic, there may be a natural annoyance that a man could be so weak, stupid, and irresponsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling rising. It says weak, being strong will not fend off this disease. I'll go back to my friend in New York. He's a strong guy. He's a strong, he's a physically strong guy. He's an emotionally strong guy. Didn't help him. (laughs) <laughs> Didn't it? That, that disease steamrolled his strength. Then it says stupid. He's a smart guy. I know for an absolute fact there's at least at least five to ten people on this line right now that are PhDs, attorneys, CPA maybe doctors, nurses, whatever that may be. There's at least at least five of you that I know of that have initials after your name. Didn't help you, didn't help you, didn't give you five minutes worth of, uh, worth of uh, respite from this disease. You can have more degrees than a thermometer. It's not gonna make one bit of difference. One of you got a new car yesterday too, and irresponsible. So if you are the most responsible person in the world, many of you are moms, many of you are pet owners, many of you are friends or daughters or sons or parents. You're very responsible people. You pay your bills on time, you raised your children, you, you took care of your pet, you took care of your home. You're very responsible people. Let me ask you a question. How much time did that buy you from a mounds bar? How much time did that buy you from the Halloween candy that your kids brought home that you said the next morning, uh, 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 I think uh, the dog ate it, you ate it. Who are you kidding? come on. So you were strong. You were smart. You were responsible. Even when you understand the malady better, you may feel this feeling rising. A look at the alcoholic in your organization is many times illuminating. You know, I've been the employer and I've been the employee. And there is a tremendous loss to business because of addiction. The loss of money is staggering. I I remember in the 1970s, I remember well the 1970s, I graduated Mather High School in Chicago in 1972. And I remember the very, very beginning rumblings of the automobile industry's problems. General Motors, Chrysler and Ford were the big three. It was an oligopoly. American Motors had gone out long ago and there was DeLorean and he, he wasn't much of a factor and so on, but we had Chrysler, Ford and we had General Motors. Those were the three kinds of cars. General Motors is Chevy, Pontiac, Oldsmobile, Buick, and GMC. Chrysler is Chrysler and Dodge. Ford is Lincoln and Ford. But there were three automakers. And they would say, don't buy cars that were manufactured on Mondays or Fridays. Why not? because the absenteeism in Detroit is through the ceiling because of the drinking and the drugging. The absenteeism is through the ceiling and the cars are not good. What a stupid idiotic thing to say, but they said it because there's a lot that goes into the car and whatever. If it doesn't pass inspection, it's not going to go. So anyway, I'm talking brand new cars. I'm not talking. (sighs) Okay. Now, The losses from addiction are staggering. But look at the price every one of us has paid in our life for our addiction. Are we where we want to be in certain areas of our life? Look at the time that we've wasted. Look at the opportunities. Look at the marriages. Look at the relationships. Look at the broken. Parts of our life that were shattered and putrefied and vandalized by our addiction. And then one day we gave it all to God and he made something beautiful out of it. Look at this pandemic. We're getting hammered down here in Arizona from that Delta variant. I was supposed to go home in November. I'm supposed to go to a wedding in November. I don't think so. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a good idea to fly right now. We're getting hammered down here, but that aside, where was I going with this? Oh, look at what God did with this, with this Corona, this, this COVID-19. He took this zoom and every night Sunday through Thursday, I go to a meeting on Zoom from 5.30 Pacific to 6.30 Pacific time. It's the same Zoom information that got you here. And we have 70, 80 people a night coming to our meetings from all over the country, from California to Massachusetts, and you name it, we have people that come to the meetings, and it's a beautiful thing to behold. Only God could take that manure and make it into something beautiful. Only God could take the broken parts of our life and make us into people that are of maximum service to him, God, and the people about us. Look at my friend in New York. Crack, food, life going nowhere lacked any type of direction at all whatsoever. And now he is of maximum service to God and the people about him. Why? What happened? What changed? Did he suddenly get smarter? Nope. He worked the steps. He worked the steps and the God, of his understanding, changed him from a crack-smoking, compulsive overeater, drug-taking, adulterer to someone who is of maximum service to God and the people about him. Somebody that others look up to. I look up to him. I think he's great. I don't think that I don't think that God looked at anybody's brokenness and said, boy, that's too much for me. So no matter where you are in your process, whether you're on that struggle bus, whether you're in good recovery, look at this chapter and it's talking about denial and ignorance and misunderstanding and that no human power could have relieved our compulsion and this ignorance, this misunderstanding, it's okay. As long as we understand, that's all that matters. (sighs) The only person that has to understand that we have to work the steps is us. I used to go to meetings many, many years ago. This is when I was still in Chicago. I'm not gonna say the person's name because they're still around. And they would not work these steps because they didn't understand everything. Don't wait for understanding. Don't wait for willingness. Willingness and understanding are overrated. Take the action every day, six days a week. I don't do it on Saturday. Six days a week, I walk three miles in the morning. 99% of the time that you hear me, if you hear me on vision, whether I'm on the second meeting or the first meeting, I'm out walking. I'm not here at my desk. I'm out walking. And I even say to the moderators, would you please time me? Because I have no concept of three minutes. I'll talk for an hour and think, oh, is my time up? So anyway, they'll all say, yes, I'll time you. I don't know the physiology of the walk. I don't know why walking benefits me. I have no idea, but my cardiologist said to me, and this is going back now seven, eight years ago. I don't know. He said the number one reason that I want you to keep walking is because it keeps you alive but it also keeps your mind sharp and it's a very good defense against your diabetes against, I don't have diabetes. He says, this is a good defense against Alzheimer's and diabetes. You may get both of them anyway, but this is a really good defense. I don't understand why that's true. I could not tell you scientifically why that is so wonderful. And let me tell you, I don't set any speed records out there. It takes me about One hour and 32, 33 minutes to complete three miles. I'm not a speed demon, trust me. I don't understand it, but it works anyway. It works anyway. Let's continue. I'm at the very bottom of 139. Is he not usually brilliant, fast thinking, imaginative and likable? When sober, I'm on 140. Does he not work hard and have a knack of getting things done? If he had these qualities and did not drink, would he be worth retaining? Should he have the same consideration as other ailing employees? Is he worth salvaging? If your decision is yes, whether the reason be humanitarian or business or both, then the following suggestions can be helpful. Can you discard the feeling that you are dealing only with habit, with stubbornness or a weak will? If this presents difficulties, rereading chapters two and three, where the alcoholic sickness is discussed at length, may be worthwhile. Now, where does chapter three come from? Chapter three, more about alcoholism, as I explained when we went through it, and I will re explain now was originally titled More Truth About Alcoholism. They toyed with the idea of more facts about alcoholism. But a lot of the guys in New York said, and in Akron said, you know, that makes us sound like we know everything about alcoholism, that somehow we are experts in the field of alcoholism and we are not. And so they asked him to please take that word out of there. And he did. But chapter three comes from a book that was written in 1930, published in 1930. And it was written by a guy by the name of Richard Peabody. And the the name of the book is The Common Sense of Drinking. And in The Common Sense of Drinking, Richard Peabody describes to the reader three characteristics of alcoholism. Number one, it is a permanent condition that it never goes away. The words once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic that appear in chapter three are an exact duplication of the ideas that Peabody had in his book, the common sense of drinking. So important is the common sense of drinking that it is not only one of the four books that framed the big book, the book of James, the common sense of drinking, the varieties of religious experience, and the the Sermon on the Mount. Those are the four books that, that really were very influential In the big book, well, we had a controversy uh, six months ago, maybe somebody wanted to mention the same person that I'm talking about, that the the crack addict, he wanted to mention one of those books, and somebody was going crazy. Oh, no, it's an outside thing. It's not. It's not. It's one of the books that framed the big book. We're not endorsing it. I'm not telling you to go out and read them or whatever. These are the books that were influential. I don't know what else to tell you. The disease is permanent. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. The disease is progressive. What does that mean, progressive? Here's how most people describe it. They say, while I'm in meetings, my disease is out doing push-ups in the parking lot. Yeah, that's a cute thing. But here's what it really means. I don't care if you're in recovery or not your disease is getting worse with each day that passes. And unless my recovery gets to be more and more and different and I shake things up, I'm gonna die in this disease. The disease is progressive, whether I'm eating or I'm not eating. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm in recovery. It doesn't matter. What, it, what matters is what am I doing for my recovery. And if I'm going to the same meetings all the time and working the same steps, do well, I can't work different steps, but if I'm doing the same things over and over again, I'm going to die in the disease because the disease is progressive and the disease is fatal. Permanent, progressive and fatal. I have a friend that lives in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's a wonderful guy. He says, it's the three P's, permanent, progressive, and fatal. Permanent, progressive, and fatal. But anyway, that's very important. So this understanding for us, all that I have to understand is I have to work the steps. All that I have to understand is I don't have to understand. I'm a compulsive overeater. I need these steps, let's continue. You as a businessman, I'm in, I'm in 140, want to know the necessities before considering the result. If you concede that your employee is ill, can he be forgiven for what he has done in the past? Can his past absurdities, great word, absurdities, some of our behavior is absurd, it's crazy, can be forgotten? Can it be appreciated that he has been a victim of crooked thinking? directly caused by the action of alcohol or food on his brain? You see, when we're in the middle of this tornado, we don't see the crazy things as crazy. What does Dr. Silkworth say to us? What does Dr. Silkworth say to us? Dr. Silkworth says our alcoholic life seems the only normal one. In other words, to us, what we are doing seems normal and natural. Doesn't everybody eat a whole cake for breakfast? Doesn't everybody eat 15 egg McMuffins for breakfast? I know I did. I know I did. I will remember the shock. This is, he's going to talk about Dr. Dan Kraske. Dr. Dan Kraske is who he's talking about. I will remember the shock I received when a prominent doctor in Chicago, Kraske, told me of cases where pressure of the spinal fluid actually ruptured the brain. No wonder an alcoholic is strangely irrational. Who wouldn't be with such a fevered brain? Normal drinkers are not so affected, nor can they understand the aberrations of the alcoholic. They don't understand us. It's okay, that's all right. The only one that has to understand is me. Your man has probably been trying to conceal a number of scrapes, perhaps getting pretty messy ones. They may be disgusting. You may be at a loss to understand how such a seemingly above board chap could be so involved. But these scrapes can generally be charged no matter how bad to the abnormal action of alcohol on his mind when drinking or getting over about an alcoholic, sometimes the model of honesty, when normal will do incredible things. Afterward, his revulsion will be terrible. I feel very bad about some of the things I said and did. Horrible, horrible revulsion at some of the things I said and did. Nearly always these antics indicate nothing more than temporary conditions. This is not to say that all alcoholics are honest and upright when not drinking. Of course, that isn't so. And such people often may impose on you. Seeing your attempt to understand and help, some men will try to take advantage of your kindness. If you are sure your man does not want to stop, he may as well be discharged. The sooner the better. Let's stop right there for just a second. Remember that step 12 is chapter 7, but step 12 isn't just chapter 7. It's to wives, the family afterwards and to employers, because what is the third part of step 12 is to practice these principles. What are the principles? The principles are the steps in all of our affairs. Our affairs are the wife or the the person closest to us, the family outside and then the employer. And if it's telling me again and again, as it does on page 96, that if the person doesn't want to do this, leave them alone. In Bill's story, it said, Ebby meaning, he says, my friend had come to give me these things, dash, if I cared to have it. When you encounter somebody that doesn't want to do this, leave them alone. Luzem gain. Luzem gain is Yiddish for leave them alone. Leave them alone. You know, and when they start with, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that, bye. Bye. I've got reruns of Bewitched to watch on, page nine, on uh, channel 95, Me TV. I've got reruns of the monsters I could be watching. I'm not going to sit and waste my time for somebody who's going to sit there and tell me what they're not going to do. And we get this all the time. Because we, at our meetings, our normal Sunday through Thursday, we have a QA and a and a nourish kite. Nourish kite is foolishness, and I excel at that. Um, (laughs) I excel at that. But we have Q&A, and people throw things out. They want to know about this. They want to know about that. Sometimes we can answer it. Sometimes we can't. But when they start with what they're not, I'm not going to weigh and measure, and I'm not going to do this, and I'm not going to see you. I gotta go, sorry, the Cubs are on and uh, the Adams family is gonna start in about two minutes. I I have no time for somebody that has a laundry list of what they're not going to do. And yet one of the questions that you'll get on vision, not as often as may I be heard, may I be heard, may I be heard, (laughs) one of the questions that you will get is, what do I do? My sponsee tells me they're not going to do this and they're not going to weigh and measure and they're not going to read the big book and they're not going to do this and they're not going to say this and go here and go there. What you do with them is you leave them alone. them Gain, page 96, it explains it. Leave them alone. It's not about results. We're not in the results business. We're not in the results business. It takes what it takes. You cannot make someone be willing to do this. I talked to somebody today. They're in Dallas, Texas. I hadn't heard from this person in months. They've been eating the entire time. I'm not going to Dallas to knock the food out of their hands. I'm not going to do it. It's stupid. They could turn right around as soon as I leave and go eat. It's a waste of time. You discharge them. The sooner, the better. Now, if they're willing, now I'll go to the wall for you. Now I'll go to the wall for you as will 125 other people or 124 other people on this line. We'll go to the wall for you. Let's continue, let's at least finish this paragraph. You are not doing him a favor by keeping him on. How many times does the big book have to explain to me, I'm not helping you if I keep you going, thinking I'm sponsoring you and you're eating or you're, Dr. Silkworth is very clear. The only remedy we have is entire abstinence. He says it three times. A man's brain must be cleared before he can he can uh, take advantage of this. How many times does he have to tell you that you you got to put down the food, you got to put down the liquor, you got to put down the crack, you got to put down the crystal meth. You got to put it down. Firing such an individual may prove a blessing to him. You know I. I didn't always just work by myself. I've had as many as 30 employees, 35 employees. And one of the things I've done is hire and fire a lot of people. (laughs) But when I lived in Eugene, Oregon, for the nine years I was there, I fired a number of people. Selling on the phone is not for everybody. It's a very tough job. You have to take a lot of rejection. You You have to screw your courage to the post and make those phone calls and, you know, not catastrophize and all this. Not everybody could do it. Not everybody should do it. And there were people I had to say, you know what? This is just not the place for you. When I ran into some of these people, invariably, they would thank me and tell me how wonderful I was to finally put them out of their misery and send them on their way to a job that they were better suited for. It's ego that makes us wanna hold on to these people. It's ego. We're not in the results business. We're afraid that if we don't get them to recover, that people will think ill of us. Eleanor Roosevelt said, when considering what others are thinking of us, let's first consider how little they do. You know what most people are thinking about me most of the time? Absolutely nothing. Nothing. We let them go. Let's finish this paragraph. It may be just the jolt he needs. I know in my own particular case that nothing my company could have done would have stopped me for stop me for so long as I was able to hold my position I could not possibly realize how serious my situation was had they fired me first and had they then taken steps to see that I was presented with the solution contained in this book I might have returned to them 6 months later a well man so let's consider that there is a solution here. And that solution is the steps. And that is the only solution. Now, before I turn this back over to Nancy, I'm gonna ask you guys, we're, first of all, for those keeping score, we're on 141, but there are many men. Okay. Um, I'm gonna ask you guys, a couple of things first of all no math questions at all under no circumstance any question that starts with if a train leaves st louis or if x equals nine no way am i doing that number two if you asked a question last week hold back and let people who did not ask a question last week come to the forefront let them ask their questions and then we will continue. And as there? oh, and last but not least, and I almost forgot this one. Please, no food questions. I don't know what you should be eating or not eating. I have no idea. I'm not a nutritionist. And I do not play one on television, so I don't know, honestly. So with that in mind, those three things in mind, let's turn it back over to Nancy J. in Geneva, Illinois, on the banks of the Fox River. And uh, let's go from there. Thank you, Harlan, so much. Today, I'm on the banks of Lake Michigan. Oh, so I'm, I'm two hours away from the Fox River. Uh, let me ask people, please participate by asking questions. Don't worry if you think the question is stupid because the very question you could be thinking about <clears throat> could help someone else. So please, we need participation. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask first of all, uh, I'm gonna look here and see if anybody has their, oh yes, we do have some hand. Betty C, would you go ahead please? Hi, Harlan. Betty C. here. I'm I'm looking over some old notes and I thought, boy, I would love to ask more about this. You made the statement that five and step five and nine are the great emancipators. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, I can. Thank you. you. Five and nine are the great emancipators because when you have this illness, you are in a prison. You are in a self-imposed prison of shame and guilt and remorse. And you are in a prison of hating what you see in the mirror or hating catching a glimpse of yourself in a storefront and you have shame about what you've done and the things that have gone wrong in your life. In step five, we begin a process of getting right. We begin a process of getting right with ourselves because we start to realize in step five that the things that have happened in our lives are not quite as unique as we once thought, that they're not quite as unique as once believed. In step five, what we realize is I'm really just another bozo on the bus, that these fears that I've had, these resentments that I've had, these things that have happened to me are something that are not unique unto me, but they are part of the human condition. That's the first major emancipator is step five. Now, step nine makes it so we do not have to fear seeing different people. We get square with, we get right with God. We get right with ourselves. And now in step nine, we begin the process of getting right with our fellow human beings. Three side benefits of working the program. You get right with God, right with yourself, and right with your fellow human